morning, church body. We are into our second week of our Amos series. As we go through this Old Testament minor prophet, we want to also be participating in the truth that we're learning, and so taking physical actions to it. So what we are going to do is, starting next week out in the lobby, we're going to have an area of our lobby that you can donate clothing to, um, and it's going to go to one of our favorite partners in Mercer County that helps um, young families in need and vulnerable young mothers and children to Homefront that operates right down the way out of the airport there. There is a, a, a home that they live in. We're going to be donating to Homefront. It's going to be two parts throughout this series. One is Amos challenges us that maybe we have too much stuff and maybe that is distracting us from our worship of God. We're going to challenge you to go through your stuff and ask the question, um, do I have too much? Can I simplify down my home, my closet, my resources? And as we do, we also want to be pivoting that into how do we support those who are vulnerable and in need in our neighborhood and directly around us. And we're going to be collecting those items at the end of our Amos series in the middle of October. We will be then taking them over to Homefront and donating them to families in need. Just one small step of activity to put into work what we are studying through this Old Testament prophet. As we walk into this week's message and this week's passage in Amos, I thought about my most recent trip to Turkey as part of my school studies. I got there this past May to see and to study the, the trips and the teachings of Paul. One of the things that I noticed in the community is that they have a strong sense of hospitality that just doesn't really exist in New Jersey. For example, every single place I would go, I would be served tea. I would, they would I'd come in, it'd be like a tiny little shop where I'd buy souvenirs and I just want to buy an Istanbul magnet, but like, come, come in, come in. They have a tea set in. I sit down, they serve me tea. And if you are like me, being in New Jersey, the first thought in my mind was, what are you trying to get out of me? What, are you trying to rope me in? You're trying to make me feel guilty? I got to buy something now? And this would happen over and over and over again. Not just shops, but a family's home connected to the missionaries that we're working with or connected to a resource where they teach the Bible. I'm being brought in. I'm being served tea. So far in from my concept, it was slow. They were just giving it to me. And it was an area to sit down and to get to know one another in an essence of hospitality. I asked questions to our missionary partners and friends there, and they said, no, no, uh, there are lots of things we love about America, but one thing that we genuinely think is better here is the culture of hospitality, that people's homes are open, their resources are shared, and that when you're with somebody, they want to spend time with you. It is an aspect of who they are. As we study Amos, particularly this morning, we're going to be challenged by this aspect of hospitality, of our homes, our lives, our resources being shared with others around us. As we look at this minor prophet, one question every week we're going to come back to is this question. Why is Amos so mad? Why is he so mad? What's he so upset about? Hopefully when you came in, you were able to get some note sheets that you can follow along in. This is one of our first questions we'll walk through today. Why is Amos mad? Why is God so mad at the people of Israel? As you read Amos, 
One thing that will hit you distinctly, different from reading the New Testament, if you've not read a lot of prophetic literature before, one thing will hit you is God is very upset. He's very angry. There is violent, angry, justice language all throughout the nine chapters of Amos. If you haven't read this sort of literature before, this view of God is a little bit unsettling. I would argue the unsettling is the nature of what is happening to unsettle us to where we are missing what God is doing in the world. Know that God is not a God that enjoys punishment, but He is a God that will not tolerate injustice. In chapter 4, God addresses overindulgence of Israel, wasting resources. In chapters 5, 6, and 8, He talks specifically about the care of the vulnerable. Amos chapter 8, verses 5 through 6, we're going to look at this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can look at it. The notes are behind me as well. The prophet Amos writes, You can't wait for the Sabbath day to be over and the religious festivals to end so that you can get back to cheating the helpless. You measure out grain with dishonest measures and you cheat the buyer with dishonest scales and you mix the grain you sell with chaff swept from the floor. Then you enslave poor people for one piece of silver or a pair of sandals. A cultural trend in the church that actually is waning since the pandemic is actually the idea that after church, church had to be over, you know, maybe 90 minutes I will tolerate in church, I'd prefer 75 minutes, but afterwards I got to eat. There's all these places I've thought about already. On Route 1, there are chain restaurants of all my desires I can go to. If you're really hipster cool, you're going to go to a place that is not a chain restaurant, either in Hopewell, maybe you catch Cafe 72 in Ewing, but i got to get there. I'm already hungry. I came to pre-service prayer. I was on the worship team. I've been here four hours. i got to eat. i got to get out of here and eat. I can see it in your eyes if my sermon is too long. I can see your stomach through your eyeballs. And no, I'm preaching too long. They're already thinking about where they're going and what we're going to eat afterwards. In the late 2010s, a trend swept over the whole internet where tips and receipts were shared. Visibly, people would take pictures of it, of the church crowds going out to lunch after church. And the disparaging thing about it was they were shaming Christians over how tiny their tips were after they rushed to their restaurant after church. And the whole run of waiters and waitresses posting these would be, I guess they weren't really preaching about caring for other people in service today. I hope that that is none of us, but it points out a glaring, small, silly example of where we as church members who come in and are pointed towards caring for God's people, sometimes in the run and chaos of our lives, miss the priority of what God is speaking. Amos is arguing something similar. He's saying you're going to your church services and you are worshiping with your mouth and with your hands, but then you are leaving with your heart unchanged and you are leaving the building, you're done with worship, and you're back to living however you wanted to live. Specifically, he says, the heart inside of you is not being changed to care about the people that God has placed around you, and you're leaving church and on Monday going back to taking advantage of others in your business and sales deals. You are going out and you're unfairly with interest rates and bank loans and operating off of people who are in vulnerable places that you yourself can get wealthy. 
This is a running theme of the letter of Amos. In Amos chapter 5, he systematically lays out three areas of injustice towards God's people. The wealthy of Israel, Amos argues, are doing three things distinctly that God is upset about. First, Amos says in Amos chapter 5 verse 10, he says, you are ignoring the poor. You don't even think about them. You would rather they not be there. You are stepping over them. In Amos 5.10, he says, how you hate honest judges, how you despise people who tell the truth. You don't even want to hear it. You don't want to hear what you are absent of. You'd rather not be burdened with these problems. Two, he says, after ignoring them, you are then taking advantage and selling the poor into debt slavery. They owe so much that eventually their life is just belongs in your pocket. Their debt is so high. The interest rate's so high. Amos 5 verse 11 says, You trample the poor, stealing their grain through taxes and unfair rent. And then third, once they are in a place of financial vulnerability, you deny them legal representation. Amos chapter 5 verse 12, You oppress good people by taking bribes and depriving the poor of justice in the courts. To sum up Amos's anger at the people of Israel is the wealthy of Israel are ignoring the poor, selling them into debt slavery, and denying them legal representation. Apply that to whatever modern cultural context is brought to your heart. Amos is telling the people of God the honest truth that they don't want to hear. You think you are worshiping Yahweh, but you are ignoring his very heart for the poor and for the vulnerable. Ignoring the problem, creating and maintaining systems of injustice in economics, and not addressing legal problems that keep those who are vulnerable, vulnerable, and keep those who are wealthy, wealthy. What I believe Amos would argue is that true worship of God should always lead to justice, righteousness, and loving our neighbor. True worship leads to justice, righteousness, and the love of neighbor. And all throughout Amos, he bounces between two topics. He talks about the poor and the vulnerable, and then he talks about idol worship, and then he talks about the poor and the vulnerable, and then he talks about idol worship. And as you read it, it can feel like a weird combination. What does an object of stone or wood in the temple have to do with how we treat the poor outside of the temple? Why are the two connected? One is normally that's like a sexuality issue. That's not a poverty issue. How are they related? The connection Amos asks is, do I care about what God cares about? Do I care about the very things that are near and dear to his heart? And that the way we worship shapes what we care about. All throughout Scripture, and Amos is hitting on it, is the theological truth that human beings bear the image of God. We are made in the image of our Creator. And every single human being shares in that bearing of the image. Amos chapter 5, verses 25 and 26, if you're in a small group, you studied it just last week, one of the powerful phrases is that Amos says, these images you worship, you made for yourselves. Why does God care that they made them themselves? 
Why is he mad about idols and the poor? When you look at ancient Near East and you look at the Old Testament, it is important to understand how human psychology works. All throughout human history, in Eastern and Western, we make images to worship because the worship of the divine is immaterial. I can't see God. I can't touch Him. It's difficult for me to understand the concept of who He is. I need to make objects that then connect my brain, my hands, my eyes to who God is. If you're from the East, Hinduism and their worship is based around this idea. Brahman is an immaterial idea, but we can make thousands of different gods that help us to understand something that is difficult to understand. This is what the Israelites are doing. They create gods out of metal or stone. They create Asherah, the goddess of sex, and fertility by making big wooden poles. Hopefully I don't have to draw your mind to why that would be. They worship Anat, a goddess of war, with metal statues of her and her brother Baal, the god of weather, who is made out of a bull or a lightning bolt made to look like. Now, sex, war, and weather are hard to visualize. Maybe I, if I'm thinking about weather, I go outside and it's stormy and I worship and I can make that connection. Or maybe me and my friends, while we're working out at the gym, are thinking about war and we're able to worship that way. I will not talk about how you might worship Asherah or how you put it into that category. But you make objects that represent Asherah, I make a strong wooden pole that visualizes. Baal is a god of fertility, I mean is a god of weather, so I have lightning bolts or I have a strong bull that represents the harvest and I can make these connections. God is saying you made those gods in order to focus on these immaterial things. And the reason he says you made is because God has already made objects and images for us to channel our worship of him into. Let's look back all the way to Genesis 1, verse 27. Genesis 1 says, So God created human beings in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Why is God so angry in Amos that they would be creating statues of other gods? Why does Moses in Exodus 20 bring down the Ten Commandments and that the second commandment is not to make any objects or images of worship? It is because God has already made an image bearer of who He is, His beauty and His glory, and it is human beings themselves. It's you and I. It's your brothers and sisters around the room. It's your neighbors. It's your family. It's your co-worker. It's your fellow students around you are the objects and images God made in order to channel our hearts of worship. And he says, every time you make something, you're pulling your eyes off of what I already made. Every time you build something, you're pulling your eyes away from what I have already made. And it's why you can stand in a room for two hours and worship these objects you made. Then you leave the building and you step over the people that I made. I want your heart of passion and compassion and love and mercy to be channeled into what I made, which are the human beings that bear my image. We are what God created to enjoy His presence. 
We are what God made to display the height and depth of His beautiful creation. We are what God made as items to channel our worship of Him by love of each other. A little further in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, it's reiterated after the flood. God reiterates this to Noah. He says, If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. For God made human beings in His own image. That human beings are sacred to the one who made us. And that a little bit of covenant history is that God makes a covenant with all of humanity after the flood. Not one that we choose to join, like we choose to join the covenant of Israel, or by faith in Jesus, join the covenant of the church. By being human beings ourselves, we are already inherently and automatically bound to the covenant with Noah that human life is sacred, and human life is valuable and important. And regardless if we can't yet see that life because it exists inside of the mother, or regardless if we'd rather not see the life because these people have debased themselves to addiction on the streets, God says they are still valuable and sacred to me. And you, by breathing air into your lungs, and you, by your heart pumping blood through your veins, have already entered into this covenant that all of human life is sacred. The Bible itself has a theology of vulnerability. Famously, it is tied up into a concept called, if you want to get fancy, the quartet of the vulnerable. How do I value God's vulnerable image bearers? In the Old Testament, the quartet of the vulnerable are summed up in four people groups, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor, the four members of society who are vulnerable the four members of society that often can't take care of themselves, the four members of our community that oftentimes need us to watch out for them, also the four members of our society that are easy to exploit and take advantage of. I remember the first time my grandfather, when he was alive, got a predatory phone call pretending to be my sister. It is what we do. If you are vulnerable, older in age, and don't understand technology, there are whole schools of people trying to exploit that. If you are young and don't yet understand economics and savings and interest rates, there are whole schools of people built to take advantage of that. If you are an immigrant in a new country that doesn't understand the language or the laws of the land, there are whole industries built to take advantage of that. What God says is, my people are the people who defend those people from those who would exploit them. They are never the ones to gain off of their vulnerability. A famous quote associated to about ten different people that never said it, but was said by an old poet named Pearl Buck from the 19th century, says, the test of a civilization is the way that it cares for its most helpless members. The test of a community of if they are worshiping the God of the Bible is how they treat the most vulnerable image bearers of their society. How do we treat the most vulnerable among us? Amos says in Amos chapter 2 verse 7, you can feel his anger. 
You trample helpless people in the dust, and you shove the oppressed out of the way. Stepping over, pushing aside. Not to miss the New Testament, Jesus shares in Mark chapter 12, verses 39 through 40. Jesus says, And how the religious love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head tables at banquets, yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be more severely punished. Oh, the warning signs for us who call on the name of God and yet are not aware of the vulnerable people he has pointed us to. The biblical mandate, according to Amos, don't ignore the vulnerable, don't take advantage of them yourself, and you are accountable for the systems that exist that exploit their vulnerability. We are accountable for the societies and communities we are a part of that build systems that continue to take advantage of vulnerable people. Amos would say, what are you doing in order to deconstruct these systems? What are you doing to advocate for the vulnerable? As Tim Keller says, how do you know you're really saved by faith? You care about the poor. When you see people without resources, your heart goes out to them. If it doesn't, maybe you're saved but you're lacking the evidence of salvation. Justification, what Christ has done for us, leads to justice, what we do for others. Justice is the sign of justification. It is all throughout the Bible. Christ may save me in a moment of prayer. He does this. It is who He is. But am I living out that salvation in how I care about His desire to save the rest of this world and the rest of His created people? Do I care about global poverty? Do I think about the products of my life and how they play into or work against global systems of injustice? We do not have the time on a Sunday morning to walk through the deep, complex systems of all of humanity. But I believe one call Amos would say is to think a little more about others suffering in the world around us. Do we prioritize this in the people we advocate for, the politicians we vote for, the people we support, and the organizations we get behind? Do we get behind where God's heart is, which is to advocate for vulnerable people? But that can be overwhelming. And we as a church have organizations we partner with. We will try to spotlight them as often as we can. We will try to resource you to resource them as an act of our community. But you may say, where can I actually start now? I will point you to another Old Testament theology. Am I bearing God's image well in my home? Am I living this out in my own life? Hospitality is a defining character trait of God. I will point you to one famous hymn in the book of Psalms, Psalm 23, verses 5 through 6. The psalmist writes about God. You prepare a feast for me, in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. 
We used to have a ministry at the church uh, called Monday Night Football. It was, as you might guess, not a justice ministry, but it was a men's ministry of community. And Monday Night Football games happen really late at night on the East Coast. Oftentimes, a game would start at 9.30, and for some of you in the room, you're already kind of feeling the groan of that. And so, men would be at someone's house till maybe 11, 11.30, midnight. There was kind of an unspoken rule that after halftime and you're getting close to 11, people sort of start to kind of make their way out. But there were a few of us that wouldn't always get that memo and would be at someone's house till like 12. 15, pushing 12.30, almost 1 a.m., and if you're hosting it, you're playing the game, right, of being like, do you want any, like, more chips? I once vacuumed around the last guy in the room with a not-so-subtle cue of the night is over. I finally came back down the stairs, and I said, go home. Just get out of here. The game's not over, I know, but it's, like, almost 1 o'clock. You got to go. Leave. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, they had a tool for this. If you're in Turkey now, they have a tool for this. I will keep refilling your cup as long as I want you to stay. So if you have your coffee cup in your hand and it's been empty for a while, you probably should get the subtle clue that it's time to go. But sometimes you're at the home of a really good friend or at the home of someone you haven't seen in a long time, or you're at the home of someone who's just that kind of a person, and your cup is never emptying. They just keep refilling it, keep refilling it. They're telling you, you are welcome here as long as you want. You are welcome in my home. What the psalmist is saying is in this ancient Near Eastern culture, Yahweh, God, the creator of all of us, is saying you are always welcome in my home. It is a defining characteristic of God that He is hospitable, that He made His creation for us and shares it with us and gives it to us, that He makes His most cherished possession, human beings themselves, His image bearers, and then shares them with us. Adam, humanity alone is lonely. I will make another person for you to share with and enjoy and spend life with, but it is my cherished creation. It bears my image, and I have made them to be shared with you. You are always welcome in me. Will you embody that yourself? Will you be hospitable people to one another? In exploring hospitality, you read the Old Testament, you read Genesis, and you read the patriarchs, and oftentimes it just feels random why God chose this family. Why Abraham? I don't really get it. Why Isaac? I don't get it. Why Jacob? I really don't get it. What about these people made God choose them? One argument that Old Testament scholars say you can find in Genesis 18 is that Abraham is defined by his hospitality. He is an incredibly hospitable person. His home is open. His resources are available. When people are taken away from him, he sells his things back to bring them back in again. In Genesis 18, he welcomes an angelic presence, God's divine representatives, without knowing that's who they are. It's just what Abraham does. His home is open and he welcomes them in and he prioritizes them in. When the people of Sodom and Gomorrah see God's angelic people, their first response is not to open their home and welcome them in. Their response is to take advantage of them. 
are we hospitable people whose homes are open, whose resources are available, who welcome one another into our lives? Rosaria Butterfield, we'll close with this application, has written a wonderful book about hospitality, and it's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, all about how we live our lives open to share with others. In an interview, she shares five steps of being a more hospitable person that God has made us and called us to be. One, she says, pray for open eyes and open heart. You may be like, well, I don't know people to share my life with. Pray that your eyes would be open and God would reveal the people to share with. I don't know, I'm just not really a people person. Pray that your heart would be open to make space for people around you. Second, keep it about Jesus, not you. But what if they don't like what I make? Or what if I open it up and they judge me? Or what if we don't get along? He says, make it about Jesus and not about you. Focus the conversation on how beautiful Jesus is. Make sure he receives glory. Don't worry about yourself. He will take care of you when you open your life to others. Third, make your home safe, not perfect. They are not coming into your home to judge how clean your refrigerator is or if you washed your baseboards that day. I may have triggered some of you. But your home does need to be safe that when they come in, they know that they can open up about themselves and not be judged and not be thrown out and not have their secrets shared to others around them. That it is a safe place where they can be themselves and we can respond with the grace that Christ has given us. Fourth, don't expect anything in return. Don't be mad if someone takes advantage of you. Don't be mad if you give to them generously and they don't give back. When I was a bachelor, I had two roommates and we decided since we were bachelors and would just eat frozen pizzas and mac and cheese that we would have one meal a night that each of us would take turns and would be a, like a, a real meal that it was our responsibility to cook. And I would spend a lot of money to make something nice. I would try a new recipe and my one roommate was like, I made quesadillas from the chicken we had yesterday. And after three months, I was telling my other roommate, like, he is spending like one-tenth of what I am spending on every meal that we are making. And he said to me, he's like, maybe it's the best that he could do. And I was like, thank you, Jesus, Juke. I receive it. Don't expect anything in return when you are giving to others. And fifth and final, expect it to be messy at times. I am a messy human being. I feel like I'm in an AA class. I am a messy, broken human being. And when I enter into relationships with other messy human beings, oftentimes we are multiplying the messiness of what it means to be humans. And if I add three or if I add four or a dozen people, I'm just multiplying the messiness of human beings. Expect that and know that it will come so it does not surprise you and exhibit a big heaping teaspoon of grace and mercy with each other. We have the advantage that Amos does not as he calls out the people of Israel for their treatment of other people. We have Jesus, and we have the example that he set. Jesus, who in John chapter 2 is called to rescue a party, and he becomes the hospitable host of a wedding that wasn't even his. He makes the best wine. He provides for the party. He gives to everybody, even though it wasn't his to do. He becomes the hospitable center. 
Jesus, who when is challenged about what love is, shares a story about the wrong ethnicity, the wrong economic group, the wrong person entirely, but who opens up his life, opens up his wallet, invites into a hotel and cares for a vulnerable person. And Jesus says, that's the model of life, this hospitable person. Jesus, who in John chapter 14 tells us that he is going through the cross, the grave, and the resurrection in order to prepare a place for every one of us. He says, the place I prepare will have room enough for all of you. I will prepare it so that in my home, you will be welcome now and for eternity. That in the home of Christ Jesus, the cup is always overflowing. We are welcome into eternity. And that Jesus can then turn back to us and say, I will do that for you for eternity because you bear my image and you are sacred and important to me. Now what are you doing out of your heart of worship in the time I have given you to love one another and to care for the vulnerable people? If you join me in prayer this morning, if you bow your heads and close your eyes with me, Some of you in the room may be that vulnerable person. You may be here this morning and you may not have a relationship with Jesus. And all today you may have been wondering, what does it look like to have that relationship with Jesus? What does it look like to know him? And I want to give you an opportunity to say yes to Jesus, to enter into that relationship just through one prayer, a first step of knowing Jesus. For those of you that may know Jesus already, for those of you that may be following him, let's use it as a moment of recommitment together. Jesus, I believe that you were and are the ultimate expression of the image of God. Not because you are God, but because you are human. Because you perfectly embodied humanity. And Jesus, I believe that you are fully God and fully human and you lived among us. And you cared for all of the vulnerable people. You cared for their physical needs. You cared for their emotional needs. You cared for their spiritual needs. And you conquered all of those needs on the cross by conquering sin and death. And that on the cross, Jesus, you took all of our messiness, all of our brokenness onto yourself. You took the full weight of our burden and you died in our place. And on the third day, you conquered sin and death. You rose from the grave, resurrected, full of glory and honor. And that by trusting in you, we ourselves can receive that same resurrection, forgiveness of sin, and the conquering of death eternal. And that by you, Jesus, we are welcome into your home now and forever. Jesus, you gave your life for me. Today, in this moment, I commit my life to know you and follow you. Will you be my Savior, God, and friend? In your name we pray, amen. If you can, stand with me if you are able all over the room. I will invite our prayer team forward to my left and to my right. And I'll just give you space this morning to respond. Our worship team will lead in one final song. And as they do... I want to challenge us this morning. Do we care about what God cares about? Do we see our fellow brothers and sisters as objects of love and adoration? Do we see humanity as sacred in and of itself? Maybe take a minute and invite the Holy Spirit as Alyssa challenged us this morning to examine our hearts. Where have we been inviting others into our home? 
Where have we not? And where can God expand our understanding of love and care for his vulnerable people? Our prayer team will be up here on my left and my right. If you want someone to pray with you, we would love to just come alongside of you, pray with you. The altar space is open. If you want to take a step of faith and on our knees invite God to be challenging us to love as he loves. Allow me to pray with you. And when I say amen, this altar space is open for you to be able to respond. Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit to examine us. Search us. That our hearts would be expanded. Our eyes would be opened. To see your people as you see them. As sacred image bearers of who you are. And may we not leave this building. And be ready to leave worship quickly to continue to enjoy our stuff and to ignore your people. May our hearts always continually be tugged back to the suffering of the people you have made. And may we see ourselves as a responsibility to respond to that suffering in compassion and generosity. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may respond.